Hello, everyone. Happy Sabbath. My name is Kendra Arsenal, and I am the host and director of a podcast called Advent Next. Uh, it's a podcast for uh, curated for curious uh, questions uh, regarding faith. And uh, today, though, I'm going to be talking about something that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, and that is the Song of Solomon. It's Valentine's Day weekend. And whether or not you are celebrating by yourself or celebrating with someone you love or not celebrating it at all because it's a pagan holiday, whatever is your jam, uh, I just want you to know that everyone here has a reason to celebrate the divine romance because more than just, you know, just the oftentimes we look at Christ and we see paternal love, we see sacrificial love, we see friendship love, but there is a romantic love in the heart of God. He says that he's coming back to, to win a bride for himself. And so I think that, you know, it's such a beautiful thing to explore. And, uh, but before we get started, I'm going to have a quick prayer for the message and then we'll get right into it. Dear heavenly father, I just thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to share your message and to share your heart and this picture and this view of divine love, uh, with this church today, Lord, I pray that you are with us all speaking directly to our hearts personally, Lord, of the fire in your heart that burns for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So a little background. This book, this really sadly large book, it's almost like 400 pages, is something that I self-published a while back. And uh, I spent about five years going through the Song of Solomon. And it's the first book that really brought me back to the Lord. Um, because it didn't have any type of religious imagery. It didn't have like, I was in a space in my life where I was really questioning, you know, Christianity's faith. And it just spoke about this incredible love uh, that God has for humanity. And this book is not available. I took it off the shelf because I'm completing my MDiv to make sure that they, there's no uh, rantings of a crazy woman inside these texts, but that it's solid. So just to kind of give you a little background about this book. Uh, and a background to my story. One, you know, Song of Solomon, uh, as it's suggests in the name, was written by Solomon. And if more than, you know, him being notoriously known for marrying like a thousand wives, uh, another thing that he was known for was building the temple. And there's so much temple imagery in this book that for me personally, I've come to see it as a text where Solomon wrote this book to help participants in temple worship understand that the relationship that they are entering into when they enter into the temple is not like other religions. God is not a bloodlust God. He is not looking for sacrifices for the sake of blood, but that this is a covenant of marriage that we're entering into. And he wanted to place this kind of just beauty and this context of what it is that we get with the Lord. And so that's my personal take on it. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the take that we're going to be looking at today. And so backing up a little further, I want to start with a story. I want to start with my personal journey down the romantic side of the heart of God. And this is like, I was 22. I was coming back to the Lord and had a lot of questions. And I remember sitting on my recliner and I was just covered in books and I was looking for answers and looking to find out who God is. And uh, I was asking so many questions and not getting enough answers. And in fact, that's probably why I do this podcast, because I ask, I get to ask tons of questions. I'm a very curious person. I'm sure you are all as well. And what I've noticed is that, you know, God can take it. 
you know, sometimes we might be afraid to ask questions because we're afraid where the answers might lead, but truth uh, has nothing to hide and will always lead us into something solid. So I'm sitting on my couch and I had fallen asleep. And I don't know if you guys have ever had dreams that just seem more than just dreams. And for me, I've had two in my life and I've had just, I'm a big dreamer, but like this one was particularly felt like it was from the Lord. And the first one was, um, I was in a crowded room and I see Jesus in the corner of this room and he's wearing like that shepherd's hood. And I've never really, I don't typically think about Jesus wearing the shepherd's hood. Maybe I've seen a picture of him like that once, but like, that's not normally how I, I think of him. And I remember we just lock eyes and in his eyes, he speaks to me and he says, I see everything. I see all the stuff that you're trying to hide. I see all the ways that you might shift and manipulate your image so that people don't know what's going on inside. I see the things that you're ashamed of. I know you. I know your deepest, deepest and darkest secrets. And I'm not afraid. I still want you. And that's when that first wave of love hit me. And I was dealing with a lot of shame. I didn't know how to rid that of me. I think sometimes we want to go on this journey of cleaning ourselves up before we can come to God. And he's like, look, I know what I'm buying when I'm entering into this relationship with you. I know. And I'm not scared. And then the second wave of love is he spoke something to me from the Song of Solomon. And it was that verse where Solomon, the male counterpart, is speaking to the woman and he says to her, turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. And I was so overtaken by this because it was so unexpected because it was God telling little human me that when he thinks about me, he's overwhelmed with love. And how could God who is infinite allow himself to be overwhelmed by anything? And it was so shocking and filled me with such I don't know how to explain it other than love. It was too much though. I had to turn my way, my, my face from his gaze. And that's when I woke up. It was too much. It's too much. Now I'm not saying I'm a prophet or anything like that, but like these are dreams for me that are touchstones for my relationship with the Lord. I go back to them to see, am I in the right place with him? The second dream was a little different, but it was, you know, it was a grain field that, you know, the amber waves of grain, it's like the light was just, everything was golden. And there was a golden altar in the middle of the field. And there was a huge lamb that had been slain. Now, this is before I had a bunch of theology in my pocket, right? So I didn't realize how theological these dreams were until afterwards. There's a huge lamb on this altar and he was slain. And the picture and the feeling and the presence of everything there was this immense innocence. And I myself was so like, I think when the angels say God is holy, that's what they mean. It's like, I can't touch it. There's just this pristine innocence that's there that you have to protect. And if you violate it, you know how wrong you are. And in that moment, I understood something profound in Revelation where it says the wicked will cry out, hide me from the wrath of the lamb. Not the wrath of the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the wrath of the lamb. That you just are aware 
of yourself in the presence of such innocence and the ways that we can violate it. And so the number one point for today, I'm gonna have five points as we go through the Song of Solomon. But the first point is love requires innocence. That in order to create a space of vulnerability and intimacy, whether that's with your friends, with your spouse, with your coworkers, whatever circle with your church, whatever circle that you're in, it requires innocence in the sense that we're not transgressing each other. We're not putting in little jabs. We're not finding ways to, to hurt people, right? You know, the saying hurt people, hurt people. I think there's two ways that that can go. Hurt people, hurt people. Looking to exact revenge on someone who hurt them, but taking it on the wrong person. Or hurt people, protect other people from that same type of hurt. You can go two ways with it. We all have a choice. And so love protects that vulnerability. You know, you, and you hear that saying um, in scriptures where it says, love keeps no record of wrong. Oftentimes the onus of that passage is placed upon the victim, right? Like you need to forgive. Love keeps no records of wrong, but also love doesn't have a record of wrong, right? That there should be an active participation and looking to clear the record quickly. And so the first point that I want you to take away from love requires innocence is that keep a short record with the people you love. Keep a short record with Jesus. Keep a short record with your friends. Keep a short record with your spouse that you don't allow the transgressions to accumulate. You know, the way that we can be short with people, the way that we can have tempers, the way that we can allow different parts of ourselves to flare up, that we, you know, nip it in the bud, right? That we keep short records. And so that's point number one, you know. Um, point number two is that love is poetic. So we're going to go into the Song of Solomon and you are going to see poetry, poetry. In fact, one third of the Bible is written in poetry. In fact, the first words that Adam says when he sees Eve is poetry. He says, alas, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That love inspires a non-utilitarian manifestation of love. It's poetry. And that God loves beautiful things. Like during the break, even now, uh, between the first message and this message, I was painting. I have some paint on my hands. Because love is one of those things that when you're in the center of God's love, there's so much creativity, so much desire to express that type of devotion and the type of the way that God fills you up. But sometimes it's not utilitarian. We live kind of in a society that values function. But there is a value to beauty and prose. And so the first thing I want to get into is... Uh, is Song of Solomon chapter one. And we're going to begin looking at verse by verse. But one thing I want to just kind of break down and give an overview of the Song of Solomon is that Solomon is the protagonist. Shulamite is also a protagonist, the two kind of love, lovers in the story. Solomon's name means peace. He's the male counterpart. Shulamite, her name also means peace. In fact, it's the feminine form of the word Solomon. So in Hebrew, if a word is feminine, you put like a T at the end. So Sholema, Solomon, Sholemite. And 
He is her peace and she is his. And they are two halves of the same whole, same thing like in the beginning you see man and woman, ish and isha. Two pieces of the same whole, Solomon, Sholomite. They find peace in a crazy world with each other. And that's the kind of love that God wants to bring us into. I mean, Sabbath is a taste of that, right? It's this chariot in time. It's this encapsulated space where God says, come away with me a while, just the two of us. I will block out the sounds and the, and the adversities of the rest of the world. And let's just focus on one another. Let's create a world unto ourselves and find shelter from the storm and find peace in the love and in the arms of each other. That's what God is inviting you into today. So starting off with chapter one, first one, if you guys want to follow along on your app or if you want to follow along uh, online, um, it says this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. So at first it starts off with kind of this, this kind of a, this, this illusion, right? That it's saying your love is better than wine, but kiss me in, 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 in the Bible really is a picture of showing favor. For example, you know, you guys see people kiss the ring of the Pope. It means that you're getting favor from the Pope by being allowed to kiss him. Or uh, you see in the Psalms where it says, uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry, show him favor, show him deference over everything else. Otherwise it's not going to be good for you. Uh, you see Joseph kissing his brothers after he had become second in charge of Egypt. And it's a show, it's a sign that they are now in his favor. Esau and Jacob, they kissed upon each other's neck in reconciliation that they had favor with one another. He says, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She desires to be in her beloved's favor because your love is better than wine. And wine in the Bible, you see it used in the temple, but it's also a picture of that thing that numbs you to the pains and afflictions of this life. Now, quarantine has been very difficult for a lot of people, um, especially people who are struggling with addiction. I mean, it's been, especially the isolation uh, has been a temptation for many to turn to alcohol, to turn back to drugs, to turn back uh, to, to binging on Netflix, anybody, right? These things that we use to numb ourselves to the pain. And she recognizes that there's something in his love that is better than wine. Because you don't wake up the next day with a hangover. There's, a, there's something that's lasting and pure and clean. And that when she's in this bubble, she can't feel the hurt that exists in the world, that there is a numbness that she can feel and she can charge into the battle knowing that she's protected by her beloved. It goes on and it says, you know, uh, again, we're just kind of highlighting some of the poetry here. It says, the fragrance of your ointments is good. Your name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Your name is ointment. And in Hebrew, the name is a picture of somebody's character. In fact, the Old Testament, one of my favorite names of God is El Shaddai. And El Shaddai is something that Abraham called God. And it literally means shod. It literally means breasted one. That God is the mighty breasted one. That he had provided Abraham comfort. Abraham left his home in Ur and to a strange land and wandered his entire life. But that God was able to comfort him in so many ways. In fact, it's a very feminine way that Abraham related to God, the breasted one, 
the one who comforts me in all seasons of my life. And so a name is a picture of someone's character. And she says, your name is like ointment. Not only is it fragrant, but it's healing to my wounds and to my bones. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, the priest would go into the temple and there was these fragrances. There was myrrh, there was uh, frankincense, and there were all of these different uh, fragrances that would be in the temple. And so their clothes would be saturated with a new scent. And when they left, they would smell differently. And that's how you know you've been into the presence. You've been in the presence of the Lord. You come away from those interactions smelling like a, the aroma of heaven. There's a different, there's a smell to it, right? There's a way that you interact with God that's just like, it's just different. It smells different. So love is poetic. And you got a little bit of taste of some of the poetry that's beginning uh, in the Song of Solomon. But the, so the first point is love requires innocence. Vulnerability, intimacy requires that there's not transgression that is happening in this relationship. Two, love is poetic. Love makes room for non-utilitarian enjoyments and pleasure. It, 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 it makes room for beauty. Point three, love is a refuge. Now, I love this because we're going to get into some more of the meat of the Song of Solomon here. And we're going to finish up in just a bit, but these are some really cool uh, points. Song of Solomon chapter one, verse five. So the woman in this story comes from a difficult background. This is her description of herself. She says, I am dark, but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyards I have not kept. So back in that society, people who were dark were people who were out in the field, unshielded by the sun. In fact, I come from California. I come from around the Salinas Valley. In fact, uh, California produces about, I think it's like 90% of all of the U.S.'s lettuce. Um, and so you see a lot of migrant workers in the field. And this woman has been out there, uncared for. And it's a picture of people who have not had the same privileges in life that others have. And she says, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I did not keep, that she had been so caught up in the task of sustaining other people's livelihood that she forgot who she was. Now, there might be people here in the audience today, women or men, who have felt so caught up in providing for their families, chasing their career, helping their friends, that they've lost touch with their own voice, my own vineyard, I have not kept. I'd give up everything for my children, my own vineyard, I have not kept. So this is a journey where she's going back to get in touch, not only with her beloved, but with herself. And she says, I've been out in the noonday sun. And she asks her beloved, she says, tell me, oh, you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where do you make it to rest at noon? I am tired. Noon is the hottest portion of the day. Where can I shelter myself when life gets hard, when I'm at the peak of being pressed on every side? Where do I go to find rest? Is it in the bottle? Is it in the movies? Is it in food? And he says, come. 
feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. Be by my side. I'll shelter you from every storm. I got you. And so love is a refuge from a storm. And that no matter what you're going through, you can crawl into that refuge and God will protect you. And also providing that refuge for somebody else. The people we love, we want to protect. And there's no shame in creating a world where it's like, we're going to drown everything out right now. I know the world is falling apart, but we got to take some time to focus on creating a better world between each other, two people at a time, three people at a time, a family, who knows? So point one, love requires innocence. Point two, love is poetic. It's creative. It's supercilious. Point number three, love is a refuge. Point number four, one of my favorite points, love sees the best in you. This is where it takes off, guys. This is where it takes off because, you know, God is not pleased that we put ourselves down. She says, I am dark. But his response in Song of Solomon 1 verse 8 is, if you do not know, if you do not know, oh, fairest among women, you're not dark. You are the fairest among women. He is redefining her in terms that are much more pleasing than the ones that she ascribed to herself. He says, all, all, the, all the privileged ones who stay indoors and, and, and are not uh, are kept away from hardship, like, that's not what I see as beautiful. I see you as beautiful. And in my eyes, you're the fairest among women. And he keeps repeating this, renaming her. In fact, the entire Song of Solomon is a picture of getting a new name. And as Christians, that is what we get. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And he's like, if you do not know, my name has different attributes than what you're calling yourself. You are chosen. You are beloved. You are mine. And I'm not going to have you walking around with your head down. Not somebody who bears my name. You are fairest among women. And he goes on and he says, I've compared you, my love. Now, this is where I'm going to have to break it down before it seems romantic. He says, I've compared you, my love, to a mare amongst Pharaoh's chariots. Now, a mare, okay, if somebody called me a mare, you know, I might have to act a little bit outside of my Christian character because that is not a compliment. Don't nobody call me a horse, okay? But in this context, he's saying something actually pretty romantic. And it's a picture of, if you look at the Old Testament, you look at the Exodus, you see that they're constantly referencing the horse and his rider, that, that they're pursuing Moses and the Israelites across the Red Sea, the horse and his rider and Pharaoh's chariots. And these were fierce creatures uh, back in the day, right? And I want to give you just a picture of what Job says about the horse and how fearless it is how majestic it is. And it says, I love the way this is written. It's very poetic. Have you given the horse strength? Now this is God replying to Job. So this is God's description of a horse. Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms, gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance. He's not intimidated 
with fierceness and rage. Nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the, the trumpet, he says, aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains shouting. Like he is, she, he is now saying, you have totally misnamed yourself. You are not some poor stricken down woman. You are clothed in thunder. You mock at fear. You go into the battle and rage because I see the warrior that you are. I know how difficult it is to get up every morning when you don't have hope. I know how difficult it is to continue to put your hand to the plow and to stay focused on the task, even though you don't see the return of your investment. I know the kind of powerful, uh, 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 powerful princess and queen that you are, that you continue to love, even when it's frightening. You mock at fear. You're not afraid. I see you. I see what you're doing. Other people don't see it, but I see you. And let me begin to call you by your real name, by your real name. And he goes and he starts uh, uh, giving her all of these accolades and attributes. He's like, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your necks and chains. And he says, your character that is being developed in you is more precious to me than gold and jewels. In fact, that is your gold and jewels. And she goes on and she makes some statements of saying, ah, oh, I can see how captivated my king is by me. I cherish him in my heart. And he goes off and he says in verse 15, you are fair, my love. Behold, do you see yourself? Behold, you are fair. And he's making this declaration. He says, you have dove's eyes. Now a dove only has a single mate in their life. He says, I see the way that you look at me like I'm the only one in the world. And that may or may not be true in your Christian walk, right? I feel like I have eyes that tend to wander at times. But I know my God knows me. And he says, I'm calling you by a different name, by a name that you haven't even obtained to yet. I am declaring it so, though it is not. You have dove's eyes. I see that you only long for me. And that is the gift that we have, that love calls you by a different name. Love sees you at your best. Love calls you by the potential that you can raise up to. And his, she, she, in response, she says, you know, you are pleasant, our bed is green. Meaning that every interaction with you, God, is fruitful. Every interaction I have with you is fruitful. And our, the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are fir. Meaning our house is strong is not going anywhere. The foundations that you have in the Lord and grounding in his love is the surest foundation that you can build your life upon, not upon wealth, not upon gaining a name for yourself, not upon getting the, the most degrees in life. This relationship is what's going to make you fruitful, what's going to be your security in hard times. And the fifth point and the last point says, love sits with you where nobody else wants to go. So point one, love requires innocence. Point two, love is poetic, it's creative. Point three, love is a refuge in the storm. Point four, love sees you at your best, sees the best in you. Point five, love sits with you where no one else wants to go. And this is where we're gonna wrap up because in chapter two, 
she says, she, get, she again, she gets back into this humble space. And she says, I'm a Rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Now, of the valley is where all the nutrients and the sediment would fall down during the rain. So it would slide off the mountains and it would kind of create this murky environment. And she says, my life is just in the valley. I'm constantly dealing with hardship. I'm constantly dealing with, with unpaid, unpaid bills or, or this difficulty and that difficulty. And she's like, but I'm just this little rose trying to keep spotless amongst all the mire and the, and the muck. And his response to that is, what? Like a lily among thorns you are. So was my beloved among the daughters. He says, you might, the daughters, let's back up, were the people who were born into privilege. They were the daughters of Jerusalem. They were born with the inheritance. She was not born with the inheritance. He said, among all of those who have inherited this world, they are just thorns in comparison to you. You're not a lily in the valley. You're a lily among thorns. But I see, you know, the things that you're comparing yourself to can't even hold a candle to who you are because beauty is made in the valley. Everything that is beautiful to God is made in the valley. The humbleness that you learn when you're in the valley, the meekness, the kindness, the empathy that we share for other people in suffering. God says, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But the entitlement and the pride, those are thorns. Everybody wants to be at the top of the mountain. But God says, that's not where I build beauty. I build it here in the valley. And it says, you know, you know kind of the end, uh, I'm going to end here in chapter two, verses 16, where she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. And she goes to see that where God dwells is amongst the lilies of the valley. You, know, you don't have to have enough money to go to Jerusalem, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to say that you've, that, that, that you've walked in his footsteps, right? If you want to find Jesus, go to the valley. Go to where the sick and the suffering are. Go to where injustice is happening. Go to where there is wrongdoing happening. Go to where there is poor and people who can't use their voice. Go to where the valley is. Sit with people who are grieving. Sit with people who are in difficult circumstances. Sit with people where things are not all pretty. You will find Jesus there. So if you feel far from the Lord, I know exactly where you can find him. You will only find him in the valley. Sometimes he comes to the mountains. He makes a little guest appearance, you know, just to kind of call some people down. But that's not where he lives. He lives in the valley. So don't be ashamed if that's where you live too, because you got good company. And she comes to this realization that I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. That these, this is my inheritance. This is my identity. In fact, the Levites of the temple said, you have no inheritance. Every other tribe of Israel got an inheritance. They got land, they got property, they got money. The Levites, the priests of the temple, it said, the Lord is your inheritance. And I believe as we move closer to the end of time that the saints of God, that that's going to be our most prized possession. Our inheritance is not what we inherit in this life, but our inheritance is him. And if you are not taking full grasp and ownership of what has been given to you in the incredible love of Jesus, you're cheating yourself. 
because there's so much that he wants to give and there's so much peace in the eye of the storm that he wants to call us away to. And so I just wanted to, to give you that message this Valentine's Day, the message of the most holy type of love that there is. It's the love of God for you. And he's crazy about you. He says to each of you, turn your eyes for me. They overwhelm me. Thank you so much for joining us today. I invite you to sing with us. Sing love 